0: Morning, it has been expressly <clears throat> my prayer in preparation to uh, share out of god 's word with you today that God would speak to you, the Holy Spirit would touch your heart, fill your life, that you would grow in your sense of his love for you, grow in the sense of his sacrifice for you, and then grow in the sense of of what He has for you. I don't know if I'm doing anything wrong or not. It's okay. Um, so, <clears throat> um, let, me, let me remind you of one thing before we dig into God's Word this morning. Next Friday, uh, Matthew starts his series in Romans, but for a few minutes before he begins, we're going to have uh, a guest, and soon I hope not to be a guest, But our our church, ECC Off-Island, is partnering with uh, Moses in India in a mission, a global mission partnership. And he's going to be here and get a chance to introduce you to him. And uh, so pray for that. Look forward to it. Um, Try to make sure you're planning on being here. And I would also say I think our plan is after the church services... Uh, We're going to take Moses and his wife, Suzanne, to Deerfield's Mall and find the food court there, something. I'll scout it out today. I haven't been there, but we're going to meet there, and then anyone at the church that wants to have lunch there can come and maybe sit and visit and get a chance to meet Moses. So that's kind of an open invitation for everyone who would like a chance to, to meet Moses. But we're looking forward to him coming into the partnership. This morning I wanted to look into a passage of scripture in the book of 1st or 2nd Samuel. And uh, if I was going to give a title of it, it would be The Kindness of God. David desires to show the kindness of God to anyone that might be left in the household of Saul. And... When Matthew asks me to preach, he doesn't always say, "Well, you have to preach about missions," since I'm on a mission team. But um, I thought to myself, you know, it's kind of hard to, to to deliver a message and and share in Scripture and not talk about missions of some kind. I, I think it's I I maybe it's even impossible. Maybe it's even impossible to do this. But um, I thought to myself when I read this passage of Scripture. It captures the very essence of what global missions is. David is in a, has kind of come in, through the course of his life since the days he come from the, from the shepherding his father's flock into the household of Saul as a musician to soothe the troubled spirit of Saul. He tackles Goliath. You know the stories pretty well. And, and then in the following years in that, from that time he is in much battle. There's many wars, big battles that are fought and waged, loss of life and so on. David comes to a period where the majority of the major battles and are over. The battle's not over for him completely, but the majority of the major battles have come to an end and David has a chance to kind of, in repose just to begin to reflect. And, and that's when it comes to his heart. Is there anyone left in the household of Saul that I might show kindness to on behalf of Jonathan? And I thought to myself, this is David's definitely a believer, a child of God, strong in his faith. He loves the Lord. And, and I don't want to speak of David in the context of a, of a natural man who doesn't know God, but as a believer who knows God, this is the default of his heart. This is what his heart reflects back to. Who can I show the kindness of God to? That's global missions. That's local missions. That's home missions. That's community missions. Whatever kind of mission, adjective you want to put on it, it has about missions. It is about sharing the love of God. If that element of us sharing our faith were removed from our life as a believer, I believe that God would just take us home as soon as we were saved. What point is there? I mean, we, we know God is our Lord and Savior. He's the creator, the master of the universe. He, he loves us. He gave His Son to die for us. And, and if it's not our responsibility to share that faith and just to receive that, then it's time to go to heaven. But because we're here, we need to be on mission. So I want us to read this passage of Scripture together. If you want to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, "There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet." The king said to him, "Where is he?" And Ziba said to the king, "He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. And paid homage and David said mephibosheth and he said behold i am your servant and david said to him do not fear for i will show you the kindness the kind for i will show you kindness for the sake of your father jonathan and i will restore to you all the land of saul your father and you shall eat at my table always He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I want us to see from this story how the Bible depicts the profound picture of the love of God. David imitates the way God loves by showing the faith of God to Mephibosheth. Basically, what we have here is the gospel presentation. We have a, an event, an account in the life of David, in the life of Mephibosheth, that, that is a mirror image of the love of God. We have Mephibosheth. Let's just talk about him for a second. Let's just try to understand um, his story. Okay, When David inquired... Someone in the household of David said he remembered Ziba, one of the Saul's servants, and said, I I do remember this one guy I I heard about. His name is Mephibosheth. He lives lives in Lodabar. So David sends for him. So I want to look at three things in this. I want to first look at the fact that where is Mephibosheth? Where is he? This is what the king asked. Where is he? The second thing is I want to look at this love that David has. For Mephibosheth on behalf, of, on behalf of Jonathan. I want to look at that context there. And then the third thing that I want us to consider is where is Mephibosheth now? So I want to look at where he is. I want to consider the context that the king sends for Mephibosheth. And then where is Mephibosheth now? So, what is his story? This crippled. At the time we read about it here, when David calls for him and says, is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I might show the love of God to? He's, he's a father. He has a, a young son himself named Micah, but he is a crippled person. The story goes way back when in one of the, one of the culminating battles in which Saul the king dies. And along with Saul... Three of his sons die, leaving only two sons. ish would die uh, sometime later through a conspiracy. And then you have only one son left of Saul, and that would be Mephibosheth. At the time when Saul died in battle, he was mortally wounded, he fell on his own sword, and he died. And two of his sons, Jonathan being one of them, three of his sons died that day. When news of that came, because of just the way kingdoms run in those days, uh, probably and even in our own time, they run similar to this, when news of that came, the nurse of a small child who was five years old named Mephibosheth grabbed up Mephibosheth and ran and hasted to take him away for, to save his life to avoid some kind of a military coup in which They would slaughter everybody who was in line to the throne so that no one would stand in the way of David taking the throne. After all, he was called by God to to be the next king after Saul. So in their haste, she grabs up the nurse, Mephibosheth's nurse, grabs up this five-year-old boy and runs, and she falls. And in the fall, Mephibosheth is crippled. And then we hear nothing about him until we get to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He's now a grown man. He lives in maker's home. Who who is this where we can only make supposition? We really don't know who this man is. Certainly he's somebody well hidden from the king, just in case there's somebody who has in their mind that that he should die, so that there's nobody who would challenge the throne of David. But he's in... He's in Maker's Home, and it's in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar means a place that is barren, a place where there is no pasture. It's not a land of Goshen. It's not a land where there's meadows and, 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 and trees and grass that grows where, there's, you can, where people can graze their flocks and their sheep. This was a barren place, and this is where Mephibosheth is found. He's in a place where there is no hope, but there's only despair. So as we begin to look at this and kind of talk about the story of Mephibosheth, I want you to have in the back of your mind, as David finds out where Mephibosheth is, where, where are you in your journey of life? Where are you? Mephibosheth was a prince. He had no claim to the throne. It's, we, we, would, we, we don't even know if, if he knew that he was had a claim to the throne. Maybe nobody spoke of it anymore. He was five years old when this happened. He was now a cripple, not even a good good candidate for the throne. He was crippled. Maybe he often wondered if anybody knew of his existence. Maybe he was told stories. Maybe he did hear he was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. Maybe he did hear that had these events not happened, he might have had a right to the, to, to the throne of Israel. Maybe he heard these things. Maybe he thought about them. But he had no means to help himself. Maybe he could only piece together fractions of his life and what it might have been or what it is now. Mephibosheth stands for kind of a type of, of every natural man. He's a type of every lost man, fallen in his fallen nature, and by the very nature, lost men are excluded from the kingdom of God because they're sinful. David was, or Mephibosheth was excluded from the kingdom. He was crippled. He was in Lodabar. And to make matters even worse, and it always is somewhat of a puzzle to me when you think, when you start studying the names of the people in the Old Testament. You think, where did they, how did they get that name? Sure, Was he born? Did they give him that name when he was born? I, this is the son of Jonathan, an heir to the throne, uh, uh, a grandson of the king. What would you name the grandson of a king? Mephibosheth? I don't think so. But this is what he was called. Mephibosheth means shameful thing. Whoa, that's harsh, isn't it? Shameful thing. He was crippled. He lived in a place that was barren, called Lodabar. Nobody knew he existed. David didn't know of him. And David's best friend in all of his life was Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. But He was five years old. That was the height of a period in history where there was battle after battle after battle. Jonathan probably scarcely knew his own youngest son, Mephibosheth. So he essentially grew up without a father. At five years old, his father dies. And he's left, unwanted, discarded in some place called Lodabar in somebody's household that nobody knows about him. You know, sometimes when we look at our life and we wonder, what is our story? Where are we? Maybe we, our minds go in a lot of different directions. We, maybe you had expectations in your life. You're in the process of fulfilling some of those expectations, perhaps now. Maybe you stop in life and you go, well, what have I accomplished this far in my life? What have I accomplished? Who am I? Where am I from? What are my hopes? Maybe you felt in some context like Mephibosheth, you're a shameful thing. You're crippled. Maybe not lame in your feet, but crippled in life. Crippled in hope, crippled in promise for something greater, something better. Maybe you have been in your life super successful. Everything you've dreamed of is happening. You've worked hard, you're accomplishing things, and you're getting somewhere too many people I've seen like that, and you know them very well, and they're still sometimes the one thing that escapes them often, if not always the one thing that escapes them, they don't have any peace. Maybe some people see themselves, they don't see themselves as in a hopeless state of affairs. Some people, if you ask them about their faith in God, you ask them about religion, you ask them about, you know, what do you think about Life and what it offers, and what's your hope? They don't. They don't have any hope. Maybe they simply hope that you know. Maybe in life, I hope my good that I've done outweighs the bad that I've done. I've talked to people like this. This is how they believe. They, they can't quote it. You can't quote it out of the Bible because it's not there. But they've adopted that because it just sounds really good. Basically, people think it's very. I'm okay. I'm okay. The didn't have that problem. He knew where he stood. He knew where he was. He knew he was in Lodabar. He knew he was lame. He was crippled. He knew he, had no, he, was, a, he was the son of a, of a prince, but he had no claim to the throne. Maybe you see yourself as a victim. I could, have, I could have been this or that, but I'm a victim. Maybe Mephibosheth felt like I was a victim. If My nurse hadn't have fallen. What would it have been like? What could, what it, could have, it have been? Maybe you see your life as some big disaster. It's been a disaster. My life just, you know, I had hopes and I had dreams and it didn't happen. They weren't, I, I didn't reach any of those. I didn't accomplish any of those things. Maybe, maybe you're on the other side of that coin. You're not a victim, but maybe you've lived with such choices in your life, you've left a trail of victims behind you. You don't often hear so much about that. It doesn't sound very good, does it? More people, I think, leave victims behind them that are a victim. Maybe you think sometimes in life, if, if I could just catch a break, maybe Mephibosheth thought this, if I could just catch a break, could have been different. I know people, they don't go to church, they don't believe in God, they don't love the Lord, they don't serve God, they don't give, they don't tithe, they they don't go on mission, they don't do anything, and their life is so successful. They're doing so well, and I do these things, and life is so tough, and it's so hard, and on and on and on it goes, one complaint after another. And I'm talking about people who pretend and put forth that they're a believer. They just have these complaints, and they're just not satisfied. This is where they are in life. This is their interpretation of their load bar. I've seen people who think, you know, I've been so successful, I have enough, but happiness has escaped them. They don't have this thing. Most people, I think, I, I think simply feel at the very at the basis that um, God will accept me; it'll be okay. And then time. Proceeds, and then they begin to feel a kind of a hopelessness about life, and then they think, "Well, I don't, gotta, I don't have any hope. You know, my, my, the days I have left are fewer than the days I have behind me, and I don't know, I don't know what my, I don't have promise, I don't have hope for anything." And they're in a bad state. Maybe there are people who are convinced that there is a God, but they don't know Him. There are some people I think that are convinced that. that um, I don't even know if I need a God or if the God that people tell me about is even a real God. Maybe they find themselves there. I don't, you know, why, do I need, why do I need God in my life? But Simply put, most people can be reduced to a state of hopelessness, hopelessness because they have no promise of God and there's no real, no real hope in their life at all. They're forever in Lodabar. They're forever the crippled. They're forever the victim. They have no hope. Well, it's got to be pretty tough. This mirrors, this mirrors what you and I are without Christ. This mirrors what you and I are without Christ. You can sit there and think of all these lists of good things you've done. These, you, you've accomplished this and this and this and this in your life, and surely God respects this. There's nowhere in the Scripture do we read this that God respects your accomplishment. Nowhere. So there's some truths that come out of this. Sometimes we feel like as, as law, when people are lost, and maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you are genuinely a lost person. You don't have Christ in your life. You don't even understand why people talk about Him. Or maybe you are a believer, but you're, you, you're wayward. You're just off the path and you're confused about what God's Word is saying and what expectations there should be. But there is a truth here that needs to come out of this. Whatever your Lodabar looks like, whatever the tragedy of your life or the disaster of your life could look like, we have a truth. And this truth says this, Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest as Jesus Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than law, appoints a son, Jesus Christ, who has been made perfect forever. He has desired, and by his power and and who he is, by his authority, will save you and I and those that will go to him and call upon him to, the Bible says, the uttermost to those who draw near to God. In other words, you can't be so far from God. You can't be so far that God says, I, I don't want, want to have anything to do with you. You can't live, have lived a life where some people say, well, you know, I walked with God and then I quit and then I, you know, I, God doesn't want me anymore. I mean, I don't care what your story is. Every, as many people that are sitting in this room today has their own story. And you cannot be so far from God that he can't save you to the uttermost, that he can't retrieve you out of Lotabar. Another truth that I think is powerful here in the context, sometimes we feel as well if you know what, I am, I do believe in God, but I know he doesn't care about me anymore because of the way I live and what I think and the battles I fight and the addictions I have or whatever it happens to be, God just doesn't have, he won't receive me anymore. I mean, how many times do I, have I had to call on God and say, I'm sorry and forgive me and, and we just feel like we think in our minds it's an enemy. It's the enemy's thoughts that are put into your mind. We think, you know, we're going to get to this place where God's going to say, you know what? You've had enough forgiveness. I'm fresh out of it anymore. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. What does the Bible teach about this? So another truth that comes out, it's very important. Then Peter came and said to them, Lord, how often Will my brothers sin against me, and I forgive them? It's kind of funny Peter saying this. He's really basically saying, Lord, how long have I got to forbear my brother? And the Lord says, as many as, or Peter says, is seven times enough? <laughs> if I forgive this guy seven times, can I, like, say I'm done with it? And just the eighth time, say, you're, I'm done with you. You know, I can't just tolerate this anymore. And what is our Lord's response? He says... Um, I say not to you seven times, but 77 times. This is the heart of our Lord to forgive. It's not a license to sin, but it says that the Lord stands always ready to forgive you. When repentance is genuine and it's real, God is forgiving you. This minute and the next minute and the next. Whatever, there's no exceptions here, except that if repentance isn't real. God is very forgiving. So you can't can't argue that I'm out of God's reach. I'm out of the reach of his love. You can't argue this. You're definitely not. A third truth that comes from this. The Lord your God, this comes out of Zephaniah chapter 3. In case you ever wonder if the Lord's tires of you because you're a rascal, you're a wretch, saved by grace, but otherwise a wretch. But God poured his mercy out, and he loved you based on the merits of his son, Jesus Christ. He loved you. I went to a church one time, just a quick story. This is so interesting to me, but this was true. And um, we were singing a song, Amazing Grace. It was a frequent song. And sometimes we had song requests night, you know, and people would always request Amazing Grace. And one of the men was talking and he, he at a church fellowship, and he says, I'm not coming to this church anymore. I mean, he was very clear and very intentional and very blunt with it. He says, I'm not coming to this church anymore. And his reason was that I'm not a wretch. He didn't like the song, Amazing Grace that Saved a Wretch Like Me. He said, I'm not a wretch. He didn't see himself as that. I thought, wow, maybe there are those who see themselves as a wretch, If you don't, maybe you're not looking at yourself the right way. But no fear for us who are wretches before our Lord come into our life and and fills us with His love and fills us with His goodness and gives us a new commandment. No fear, because God says this this third truth. The Lord your God is in your midst. God is among us. God is among us within our hearts as believers a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Wow, this is how God feels about you. It's Pretty special. You can't be so far entrenched in Lodabar in your crippling circumstances that God's love cannot reach you or that he feels that you are not worth his effort or his time. The second thing I want us to look at. And now we come to this part where the king sends for Mephibosheth. He founds out that this, this boy lives, this young man lives. And he was the son of Jonathan. And he says, I want to know where he is. And, and Ziba tells him where he is. He says, go get him. I want him to come here. Now this is based in a scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We won't turn there and read it, but let me just bring you up to date here. Way back just after the David slew Goliath, and he comes into the house of Saul. He meets Jonathan. He's probably Jonathan is probably 15 to 20 years his senior. But an immediate bond came between these two men. Immediately. they They couldn't share life stories and then slowly just grow into great friends. They just immediately had a friendship. And it was based on this because Jonathan loved the Lord. Jonathan was a believer. He served God, and when he saw the, the, what David had done and saw the faith and compassion of David for the God of Israel, their souls, the Bible says, were united and knit together forever in that moment. That's what unites people. You've probably felt that here. You come from your home country halfway around the world somewhere, and you come here and you meet with people from everywhere with every kind of different accent, and you share your common faith with them, and immediately they're your friend forever. Have you felt that? It's true, it happens. I have people here, I think, what's going to happen when I go home? How am I going to stay in touch with all these people? You know? I'm just going to wait till we get to heaven. It's easier to keep up because I don't like texting. It's too much work. But they were knit together. And they made a covenant. Jonathan made a covenant. He knew, this is what Jonathan was wise. He knew God had called David to be a king. So he takes his armor and his sword. And he passes it on to David and says, I recognize God's authority in your life for you to be the king. And these men united. And Jonathan says, make a covenant with me, will you? Take care of my family. Take care of my my family. And David said, done. You're my brother. It's done. And and so they had this covenant relationship, this bond in, in their faith. And so the king says, In this repose, when the wars are slowed down, he says, is there anyone in the household of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to? And then so we find out it's Mephibosheth. So he sends for him and says, go get him. There's a couple of things that come out here that I think are very, very powerful. First of all, Mephibosheth accepts the invitation of the king. He accepts this. If you are in some Lodabar of your own, some barren place in life, and the king issues you an invitation, do you accept it? Or do you think, no, I kind of like it here. Things aren't very good, but I'm just going to stay here. This is not very likely. Mephibosheth accepts the invitation of the king. It comes. What's unique about this, it comes on the behalf. David doesn't even know him. It's not like... This little boy, I, I I remember when he was this and this, and I grew up with him, and we were like, you know, and I was like his uncle, and he, he doesn't even know he exists. But because of his love for Jonathan, because of his love the covenant relationship with Jonathan, he says, bring this Mephibosheth into my house. Go get him now, and bring him into my house. Wow. Does that not parallel the gospel? You know, God loves you, and for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself, He says, I'm not going to let you pay for your sins. You can't do it anyway. You can only pay for it by your death and eternity in hell. And God says, I don't really want that because I can't rejoice over you if you're in hell. So He gives His Son to die on the cross. He died for the sins that you have committed, and you have committed many I have committed many beyond the scope of measurement. We are sinners. But God is beyond the scope of measurement, gracious and kind. And so for the sake of Jonathan, David's friend, he brings Mephibosheth into his house. For the sake of Christ, God says, He paid the debt. You come into my house. You are heir with the king's son. You are heirs with Christ. Come into the king's throne. Now, there's a second thing here that I think is transcends this, but it still fits the gospel in, in this condition. It wasn't that David said in his heart and mind "It says, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking this through because here's what I want to do. Um, I remember Jonathan. I loved him, and we were like friends. We were buds. We were best buds. And uh, what can I do to, to remember this? Can I, like, make a national holiday, this, this? this? No, no, no. That wasn't what came out first. What came out first, Saul? David said, is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I could show the kindness of God to? That was his heart. That was the default of David's heart. to, to be to, Who can I show? I have this love of God in my life. Who can I show the kindness of God to? And so, think with me on this. It wasn't because of Jonathan... And for us as Christians, it's not because of Christ that God loves us. God loved us from before the foundations of the world. It, it is through Christ that God loves us. Christ is the channel of the blessings that we have in, in, of, of God's love in our lives. He died for us so that God's love could be perfected and His work could be perfected in us. That we could become one of His sons, and live with him for an eternity. Jonathan seems to be the reason that David wanted to take Mephibosheth into his own house. It was a covenant relationship, but it was just the channel by which he could show the love of God. Same thing with us as believers. Same exact thing. This parallel is the truth of God's love. Christ wasn't the reason he was the channel of that love. Third thing, where's Mephibosheth at now? When you first read this story, if you don't read it slow, you still see him as like this little boy, maybe a young teenager. He's not a young teenager, he's probably in his mid 20s. He has his own son. Where is Mephibosheth now? Well, a cursory reading of this, you might think, well, gosh. <laughs> He's got, he gets to eat in the best place in the kingdom. He's always at the king's table. Is that what that means? Is that he has a, just a good guaranteed meal for the rest of his life? Is that what it means? He's just, I, I got a good job. It's kind of like having a good job. I got a good meal and, and I'm never going to be exempted from this meal. I can always eat at the king's table. Is that what that means? No, no. Not for one second is that what that means. In... David's kindness to Mephibosheth, remember, what did he give him? He says, I'm going to restore to you all of the land and all the possessions of Saul, your grandfather. All of his servants are now yours. All of his land holdings are now yours. And he told Ziba, you take care of this stuff and you bring in, you bring in the harvest into Mephibosheth's home. And you serve Mephibosheth. But as for Mephibosheth, He's at my table. He is at my table. Wow. It's like David is taking an ownership in this. This is what God does for you and for me. He takes an ownership in your life. Now, some of you might be. You're you're still a little too connected to Lodabar, and you're probably thinking to yourself, my life... You say, Brother Tim, you don't even know my life. There is no evidence that God's taken any kind of ownership in my life. If, you could, if I could sit down with me ten minutes, I could share some things with you, and you would see that I am still in Lodabar, and God is not on His throne. People think this way. It's not the way it is. God has taken ownership over your life. If you believe in Him, and you draw nigh to Him, and you accept that Christ died for you on the cross, Then you are a child of the king. You sit at the king's table every single day. Let's unpack some of this and see if if we can make sense out of this. You remember a psalm that David wrote, probably wrote it when he was younger. Psalm 23, you recall this psalm? Most people seem to have it memorized. In verse four and five, it says this: David says, "In this psalm, "Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though, even though when you look at the circumstances around my life, because you don't know me very well, you might think, oh, he's in Lodabar. You're still in Lodabar?" Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me. Most believers today are too quick on here and they said to God they're they're indirectly maybe even directly sometimes your rod and your staff they're a bothersome thing to me. I'm a child of God I deserve better. I don't want to battle anymore. I don't want struggles anymore. I, don't, I want a good job. I want a good marriage. I want my kids. I want this and this and this and this because I'm a believer and I shouldn't have to struggle anymore. What's the deal? What's with this spreading of my table that you've done for me, God, because I'm not really liking it too well? Okay, I just said it for you because a lot of people say, I've said this. Y'all, I've complained bitterly before God. But He loves me, right? and He stayed with me, and He taught me from His Word, and I've embraced the truth of God's Word, and, and, and I learned these lessons over and over again, and I'm okay with that. I have, this is a lot, time of sanctification. Most of us keep thinking that we are wanting the, this promise of the love of God to be like heaven here on earth. You have a peace that surpasses understanding. It's because everybody looks at you and goes, you have no reason to be peaceful. Why are you peaceful? That's why it surpasses understanding. Because your life is like a wreck and everybody sees it and said, how can you just kind of go along easy like?" Because I trust in God and I love him and he loves me. And I'm thankful for what he's doing in my heart, which is not always visible to people. But I'm thankful for what God's doing in my heart. Sanctification is a work that goes on right now. So David says this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff—that's what you, kind of manhandle the sheep with, you know. Take that hook and jerk somebody back this way or this way, and smack them this way or this way, and get them to go this way. Well, you're describing God in an awful kind of sort of way. Am I? Am I? What's the one lesson, parents, you're going to teach your children for sure—the earliest lesson? Don't run out in traffic. You know, you don't sit there and rationalize with your son or your little daughters. You don't rationalize them and sit down. Let's talk about this. You stay away from cars because they're going to hurt you. No, no. You snatch them right up and you give them a big whipping and you make sure they associate the edge of that curve in the street as a danger zone. Because as, as a parent, you're not losing your child over that. Okay, maybe we need to be less sometimes. Another lesson. Thy rod and thy staff that come from me, do you see that? If God pulled that rod and that staff away from your life and my life, we would be of all people most miserable because you know what would happen. I promise you this is what would happen. You start inching back to Lodabar. You just don't call it that. You call it something else. But you inch back to this place in your life that was barren of no hope and no promise. God is not going to let that happen in your life. So David says, Thy rod and thy staff, they come from me. And this is the part I like. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David's saying, I can't ask for more than you're giving me, God. And I know where my table is set. It's in the presence of my enemies. There's difficulties surrounding me all of the time. Trials and afflictions and one thing and then another. That doesn't define who we are. God loves us. That defines who you are and who I am. God knows where you are. He set this table for you. You know, I have this, I just recently lost my father, and I found in sh- two short weeks, even at school, I'm attributing many things to my father that perhaps he never said, but they seem like the kind of things he would have said. So I like to tell my students, well, my father would say this and this. But I remember my father, and he actually said this. When we were boys growing up, My brother and I, and I had a younger brother, but he was too much younger, so he didn't go with us. But my brother and I, man, we were like on adventure overload. I only told my mother these stories after I was past 40, okay? And she still was in shock. But we were like an adventure overload. We just always looking for some kind of adventure. We didn't have video games in those days, so we had real adventures. Okay, and um, sometimes they got us in trouble. Maybe all the time. Sometimes they got us in a bind. I remember my father's in the military. He had like these things on his arm. He called them stripes, and he used to tell us, boys, you better not do anything that costs me one of my stripes. We were like terrified, you know? So we had to be extra covert in our adventures, but I remember getting caught in a particular context one time, one of our adventures, and my father gave me the long speech, you know, and the really long one, and one of the things that he told me, he said something like this, as long, you know that you probably heard this too, as long as you eat at my table, have you heard this? Your father said, this is just my, as long as you eat at my table, it's my rules. So, And my father was real about that. He wasn't like maybe fathers today or like, my father was like, he only said things once. I know that's a different generation today. My father really did say things just one time because we just knew. We didn't want to pay the consequences. But anyway, he said, as long as you're at my table. I understand that. There's, a way to, there's an expectation when you're at my table. You embrace my rules. You think God is different? You think He's going to exempt you from certain things? Listen, you can't have it both ways. You cannot eat at the table of the king and, and then want Lodabar at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. It will not. Eventually, you're going back to Lodabar or you're throwing and all of that and you say, God, I want just you and all of you. Help me with these battles because I just want you in my life. We must abide at the king's table. When, the, when Mephibosheth came and he, and he stayed at the king's table, this wasn't some cursory event in his life. He embraced the king's table. What does that actually mean? If it's not about the food, what does that really mean? He took it all. He took it all. He really did thank God for trials, counted it a joy. For, to, to have to face different afflictions and different trials and, 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 and work through those things. He really did because he knew where he was at, he knew what he was promised. You and I are promised the great things we were promised. People start reading the Bible and start reading this book about and, and read about what it says about heaven and quit expecting it to happen here. We're, uh, listen, you can have great joy here. I'm not trying to say it's just being a Christian is a miserable life, but I'm just trying to say don't get it mixed up and confused. You're promised heaven, and heaven is going to be wonderful. You're not even going to have an evil thought in heaven. You see, it's going to be very different. You still have evil thoughts now. It's going to be very different. We must abide at the king's table. It's, too, it's just very unseemly to, to think of Mephibosheth saying, David, I, David, uh, thank you for this gift and what you've done with giving me all my grandfather's holdings. I like this, but you know, every couple of weekends, I need to kind of go back and see what life's like there. Hang with my buds, you know. The thing about Mephibosheth, he knew he was crippled. He knew he was crippled. He didn't like it. Do you know how crippled sin makes you and I? Quit liking it, and go to God. Receive Him, embrace Him, draw near to Him. He can save you to the uttermost. Just have the right expectations. The king's table is symbolic of where God has you now. He's prepared the table for you. We just latch on to these verses, these truths, these great truths of the Bible, but we don't hang on to them very tight, I think, sometimes. But we know this, these truths. The Bible says, God says, I know the plans I have for you. What is that? Well, how do you interpret that? They're plans for good. Why did, why did he tell Jeremiah, I know the plans I have you for you, and they're plans for good and not for evil? Why did he have to tell him that? It was God speaking. Why does God, Did God have to clarify himself? No, he was clarifying things for Jeremiah. He was clarifying things for you and I. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Why has he got to tell us that it all works? Because some things, if you isolate it and you take an event out and you look at it, it's just harsh. It's very tough. Sometimes things happen and we just can't figure it out. Why did God do that? I quit asking that question, or I'm trying to quit asking that question. You know, I've learned something, and I'll close with this, this illustration. Um, this thought, you know, uh, best thing maybe is, like us as a faith family, we've been looking for a new venue, right? And we've been led this way, and the door was shut, and this way, and the door was shut, and so on. The devil is happening, and uh, it's like, and sometimes these avenues look like we have great promise, and so we're going to, nothing happens, nothing happens out of it. You know, I remember as a boy growing up, I lived with my grandfather on the farm when my father was stationed where we couldn't go, and uh, my brother and I had a horse, a young colt, and kind of gave us the responsibility of breaking this horse, and so on. So he would tell us what to do, and we would just be very diligent and we would do this stuff. One of the things that we had to do was put a bridle on the horse and lead the horse. We had to teach it to lead. So when I would walk, the horse would walk with me. If I stopped and turned direction, the horse would go with me. So sometimes we go out in the pasture per my grandfather's instructions and we'd do just that. You know what? Now I was I wonder now, thinking back what the horse ever goes, where we're we going. You know, I We headed off to the pasture, down the pasture, and and you stopped right in the middle, and you go, well, I thought we were going to the north fence. I thought we were going to do this. No, no. And we just, there was, the purpose was for us was to lead, teach the horse to lead, right? Teach it to lead. Does not God want to teach us to follow him, you know? So sometimes when things happen in our lives and we're the table's spread for us and it's in the presence of our enemies and things don't look so good and they're not and they're very frustrating. Isn't it okay God, for God to teach us something? Isn't it okay for him to take away our support and put himself up there to support us and show, him, show us that he loves us and cares for us and he'll see us through? See, sometimes you have problems and you can see through to the end of it. You can see the end of this. You can see through it. It's better when you can't. and It's better when you say, God, I'm just desperate here. And God says, I'm glad you are because I have everything you need. I have set the table. I have everything you need. Let me do this. I've got to stop. My time's up. Was this message about global missions at all? Sure it is. Sure it is. Who is left of the household of Saul? that you could show the love of God to. Okay? It's about the gospel. The gospel isn't just one part. It's it's being a lost sinner and repenting. It's accepting the love of God, and then it's abiding at His table. Okay? And then when we have to share that, we need to share that. It's an urgent thing. You don't know if it cries out of you. And in this church, we're gonna we're trying to offer these different venues, you know, different opportunities for missions and more are coming. But I know if you're not doing anything with FAM right now, and maybe India won't be possible for you, you can always pray. But you know what I have learned by just talking and listening to different families and people in this church? So many of you do such a, an amazing job. You're on mission. It just isn't known by anybody else. You're praying for people you work with. You're loving on people that are your neighbors. Uh, Maybe you're a mom and a dad. And your mission right now, your biggest mission is your children. Wow, that's a good mission to be on. A good mission to be on. Be on mission, and it means this. Whether it's global, local, community, in your own household, across the street, it's showing the love and kindness of God. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day, your blessings. Lord, for the power of your word. Lord, for your intense love that you have for us. Father, that you do know the plans that you have for our lives. And their plans for good. But you also tell us, Father, in the world, we will have trouble. It's okay. We would rather be at your table and experience your love, and to have the hope you give us in eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your loving way with us. Lord, we always desire you, just you, to be the master of our lives. Teach us to follow. Teach us to rejoice in this love. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.